Amen. Um, we've ordered more. They should, uh, I was hoping they'd be here by today, but I'm praying they'll be here tomorrow. So in time for Saturday or Sunday. Amen. So we'll have our extras here on Sunday. Amen. And um, part with that, we're preparing for the all-night prayer meeting uh, next Friday, October 9th. Amen. And so tomorrow begins a new stage, I guess, phase two, uh, where we begin fasting. Um, the Jewish fast, we're fasting during the day, and we we eat at dinner. So um, fa I guess fasting, breakfast and lunch, and you get to have dinner. So I guess dinner dinner's moving up to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, man. Praise God. Amen. So, um, and also starting tomorrow, we start reading the book of Acts, a chapter a day. So we'll be reading a chapter of the book, Hell's Twelve Apostles, and uh, starting tomorrow, we're reading, start with cha Acts chapter 1 up until uh, next Friday. So I'm excited for what God has uh, already done and doing in our midst and what he's going to do, where he's taking us. Amen. We want to go wherever God is leading. Amen. That's the place we want to be. Amen. And we want to, at this time, we want to have uh, the kids' church can be dismissed if they've already had. Sounds like they're not waiting for me anymore. Um, so um, without further ado, and have our, our young minister for the evening come up, um, Brother Andy, come up and let's uh, get behind him and support him. Amen. As he ministers. Thank you, Pastor Lot. Praise the Lord, church. Amen. God is good. I was going to try to work with these without these glasses, but it seems I'm going to have to put them on anyway. That's okay. Praise the Lord. All right. Um, you know, one of my favorite things I remember recollecting first coming to the Lord was, I shared this with one of uh, our first pastor, and I said, you know, my, the favorite thing that I like about the first service when we start is the worship. And uh, I remember having to eat those words because he said, oh, okay, that's, that's a good thing. However, we have the word that comes after the worship. So he said, hey, guys, okay, the worship is over. Andy's favorite part is over. We're going to hear the word. <laughs> and I said, I didn't mean it that way. But, uh, and I know he didn't mean it that way either. But, uh, you know, I was blessed. I'm always blessed by the worship for the Lord, especially when we all come together and we praise his name. Okay, if, uh, so if we would turn our books, uh, our Bibles, to Leviticus 2.13, and uh, brother's already got it up there, if, or you can just look up up here on, this, on the screen. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Praise the Lord. And you may be seated. My sermon's going to be uh, a salted offering. Praise God. Oh, you guys can pray with me if you want to from where you're seated. I'm sorry. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you're going to bring forth. Lord, how you have blessed us, Lord, daily, Lord God. The morning still comes and the night comes, Lord, and we just are so glad to hear the hymns that sing in our hearts, Lord, that praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. So, so salt is a useful con condiment that is pretty accessible no matter where you plan on eating. You may have a stash somewhere in your vehicle, or you may stop by the store and pick it up on the way home. 
Most foods that we eat are prepared with salt, and not because uh, because we ask of them, but at times they're already in the ingredients uh, which they come with. Most foods contain a whole lot of salt. Their, their properties are to preserve. They also are used to draw water out of foods that we eat so that may, they may last longer and prepare for a later use. They're also used for purification, as we know, with those who have homes with well water systems. But mostly salt is purpose, main purpose, is added by people to reach flavor of his a desired taste. And so it is with God that we desired a oh, so it is with, with God that he desires a certain taste with his sacrifices. He says that every oblation shall season with salt. He's talking about seizing it. And at times we are not able to season it, so we need his seasoning to come into our lives. He says, Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, I'm, I brought this scripture in because it really close, it, all scripture relates to each other. It's never set apart one from the other. And it says, every man according as he proposeth in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver, meaning that he loves when someone brings an offering that is covered with salt. Luke 6:35 But beloved love ye oh I'm sorry but love ye your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing again and your wars shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil so here God opens and again God works my heart God opens my eyes and he allows to see certain things and not only mine but yours as well he says to love your enemies and do good Lend and hope nothing again. Don't expect anything back. You give from the heart. It smells like an offering of sacrifice to me. But how much salt are you putting on it is the question. What is the significance of the salt in our case? What is its purpose and what does it mean? Then the Lord again began to speak to me. Salt purifies, it preserves, and it brings out the flavor of your sacrifice. God was saying if you... If what you claim to be giving me or doing does not have salt in it, it does not taste good. It is in no way to my liking. So if it is not to his, to his liking, people, hear what the Bible says in Mark 9.50. Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Amen. So God is, is speaking to us to have the salt. The, the question is, how do we get this salt? So then I read in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. He's already calling us the salt of the earth. But if the salt, then he goes after, after salt, have lost its savor, without, wherewith shall it be salted? If thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. So I thought, well, surely salt can naturally lose its flavor. And I come across some interesting information as to how salt could possibly lose its flavor. You know, the salt never really loses its flavor on its own, except through two different and interesting ways. One is to apply a positive charge to it with where a chemical change would take place. The second way is simple. It is by watering it down. It is now sounding a little bit more familiar. Let us not get ahead of ourselves, though. <laughs> the more water you add to a tablespoon of salt, the less salty it becomes. 
Add five gallons and you probably would not even taste it anymore. So if your faith holds more water than salt, you should see how the salt could easily lose its flavor. The water, be, the water would be a representation of what we do or believe to be right. It could even be strife or unsubmitted flesh. It could be a battle of mind. But let me tell you that you can overcome that. When you see when you bring an offering, you see when you bring an offering of submitted flesh to the altar and you call on the name of Jesus, the bullock is about to die. In the days of Moses, of the tabernacle for this matter, for those who have read Leviticus and, of course, also in Exodus, we know there were sacrifices that brought forth for that matter. If your salt levels are low, don't worry. All you have to do is make an altar. You see, some time ago our pastor preached about making an altar. All you got to do is make where you find it, which is right where you are. Because of Mark 9, 4, 9, it reads, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Did you hear that? It says, For everyone shall be salted with fire. Your worship for God can also put the salt on your sacrifice. It is, it is consuming fire that puts the salt upon your sacrifice. The question is, what kind of worship will you bring to the altar? Is it a sprinkle? Is it a dash? Or are you going to step out in faith and say, Lord, I'm right here. And Dan said, there's no more water left in, in you because the salt poured out of the fire upon your, your, your sacrifice is now getting to the desired flavor the Lord delights in. Then begins to speak, Then he begins to speak to me again and he said to me, Sometimes there's, he says, sometimes there are some who lose their flavor, and I understood this, and I wondered how so. He said, keep reading Matthew 5, 13, but if the salt has lost its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? Is it thenceforth for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men? Then the Lord spoke to me again. He said, every time there is a sacrifice at the altar, it needs a little salt on it. I'm like, how? He said, pray for your brother. He said, you see the things of the world that have taken a toll on him, and he needs your help every now and then. He said to me, you have, you have been selfish, you know. And I said, I know, Lord. And then he said, and then I said, he said, don't be, don't be selfish. I said, forgive me, Lord. And he said, I already have. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Men of God. We're required to bring all, to all sacrifice before the tabernacle of the congregation and place our hands on the bullocks. On the bullocks that signify the passing on of our sins unto the bullocks being sacrificed before atonement in this case. But we know that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. This is what we're bringing forth for that, for that sake. And that was the only, uh, that's the only the beginning of the process in which his sacrifice was used. The blood was sprinkled on the altar, pushing the sins forward. And let me be clear, pushed forward but not remitted at that time. Guess what? Our sins have been remitted. If you have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, can you rejoice with me and say his sins are remitted because I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. When I went down in the water, my sins were washed away. I was sealed by a king's name. I was filled by his spirit, and his name is Jesus. Glory and praise be unto him. Can we just give him a little bit of praise for that?
Praise the Lord. There's nothing more beautiful than a salted sacrifice. It is either of him or of you, your praise and your worship. Amen. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are upon unto, his, unto their cry. In 1 Peter 2, 9, and this applies to us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The bullock does represent our, fle our, our flesh. The oil represents the king's seal upon your life and anointing and the washing of the flesh of sins. The salt you put on every sacrifice has many attributes. Your faithfulness to worship, the things you do with joy, it can be patience, which all of the gifts of the Spirit come under this. Let me just say that the list is endless. Praise be to the Lord Jesus. And with that said, let me leave you with these words. The Bible says that if the salt has lost its flavor, it has been cast down. I repeat this only because there's a few things that I wanted to bring to note. If we have the salt of the earth and we have lost the flavor, then how is it that we can lose our flavor? We can identify losing our flavor by deliberately taking a wrong turn. We can lose our flavor by teaching a different watered-down doctrine that we believe to be true. We can lose our flavor by how we live for the world and not for God. We can lose our flavor by ignoring God's voice. We can lose our flavor when we sanctify the profane. Let us be aware that God is always in the midst of his people. And let us remember that we are glorifying his name. He leadeth and he puts the path of righteousness. He puts the, I'm sorry. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Glory to his name. Glory be to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray the Lord bless you with his message. And thank you, Pastor Locke. Amen. Thank you, Brother Andy. Amen. Sometimes you can, uh, you take a bite of something and you realize, man, this, this is really bland and it needs more salt. And it really is amazing when you put salt on it, how it just comes to life. And uh, that's what God wants us to do. Uh, he doesn't want us to be lukewarm, but he wants us to have some flavor and some savor. Amen. So thank you for that, Brother Andy. Amen. Um, tonight, um, we want to start a new series. Um, I know we finished up last week about the Great Reset, talking about Daniel's visions about uh, the coming kingdoms and the future and the end of the world. Amen. And so um, kind of continuing somewhat in that same vein, but a different, different angle, different way, if you will. Uh, the book of Ephesians, we're going to take our text from there, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Man, the word of the Lord says, unto me, this is Paul talking, unto me who am less than the least of all saints. So it doesn't matter where you think you are in the kingdom of God or how high and mighty you are, know that Paul says he's under you. Amen. And where where to be? Where are you uh, great in the kingdom of God? Is to be uh, be a servant. That's the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, "I'm the least of all saints." Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God? who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers 
in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight from this title, The Great Mystery. The Great Mystery. You may be seated tonight. Thank you for standing. That very word, mystery, automatically grabs the attention of the hearers. Ooh, a, a mystery. There is something there that I don't know about. Something out there that I'm not sure what it is. Something that is hidden that I need to find out because there's a mystery. My curiosity is kindled and I want to figure out what that mystery might be. But mysteries are manifested in many ways. There are these things nowadays, they're called escape rooms, where you pay to get locked into a room and you got to try to find your way out. Find, you have to find and follow and figure out clues in order to escape in the amount of time that they have given you. Otherwise, whatever the situation, you die, you blow up, whatever imaginary situation it is. Um, yeah. It's real. It's real great. Which really does a real number on your emotions. So, and you pay to do that, by the way. So, pay to be tortured. But uh, that, in essence, is a mystery. You walk into a room and you have no idea what the deal is, and you have to figure your way out. Uh, and there are also these things that are called crossword puzzles. They look like a mystery, and they will always be one for me. Let somebody else do those. Just a bunch of blocks. And so then there's this old board game called Clue. Anyone know about Clue? You have to solve the murder mystery. It was Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. A mystery is something that is shrouded, something that's hidden, whether on purpose or it may be just there right out in the open and no one is paying any attention to it. It takes someone with a uh, really thought-out plan to create, to hide, and to slowly reveal a mystery. I think that God has the mental capacity to hide something from humanity if he so desires. If there is a mystery that God has and he doesn't want humanity to know about it, then guess what? We ain't going to know about it. We won't be smart enough to figure it out. And look what God himself says in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so it doesn't matter how smart we are or think we are. God will always be one step ahead of us because his ways are higher than our ways. Well, he's more than one step ahead of us. He's at the finish line watching us, trying to figure out where to put our next step. And so if his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, then there are things about God that we don't even know about. He has things planned for this world, for your life, that we have no clue about. The only things that we know about God and His ways are the things that He reveals to us or wants us to know or wants us to find out. 
If he doesn't want us to know about it, we're not going to know. We'll go through life not even realizing we missed out on something. The only things that we know are the things he reveals. If he doesn't reveal it, we're not going to find it or figure it out. Exodus 6 and 2, and God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. All of the experiences that Abraham had with God, talking with him, Walking with him, whatever manifestation that his relationship was, was with God. We don't know if he heard an audible voice or how that was. But it was uh, Abraham was all alone with God for his life. And with all of that and all the offering of sacrifices unto God and all the talking and, and, and seeing God's hands work miraculously in his life. And, and God is telling Moses here that there is a part of me. That I never even revealed unto Abraham. He had no idea about what I'm talking to you about. You mean to tell me that the father of faith, the great Abraham, didn't have any clue about your name Jehovah? Moses was thinking that you, you mean that my walk and my relationship with you, God, is going to be even greater than all the things that I heard about you from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the stories and acts that were passed down the line of oral tradition, the things that God had done. All of those things, and, and my, you're telling me, God, that you're revealing something to me that they don't even know about. Because all that I am remains a mystery to you until... I am revealed unto you. You see, you can hear about me all you want. Hear the stories, hear of my acts, and, and hear of the miraculous deeds, and hear of my greatness. But with all of that, I will still be a mystery until you have encountered with me, until you see me, until you experience my presence and my glory and my power, it will all just remain a story, a mystery, until you get a hold of it yourself. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, she was captivated by the stories of his greatness, but it was all really still a mystery to her. Until she came to Jerusalem and she experienced its beauty and majesty of that holy city with her own eyes. And then the mystery had been revealed. And what did she say when she saw it with her own eyes? In 1 Kings she said to the king, it was true, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of thine acts and of thy wisdom Howbeit, I believe not the words. It was just, it sounded too good to be true. Until I came and mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. 
It all just sounded too good to be true. It would just sound like it was just too mysterious. And so I had to find out for myself. And sure enough, the half wasn't even told to me. The, the, belief, the part that I heard, it sounded so unreal, unbelievable. But they didn't even tell me the half of it of your greatness and how great and your glory was. But wasn't that kind of how it was? When you first came to Jesus, you had heard about him, heard about his love, his grace, his mercy, and, and all that you heard sounded incredible, but Jesus was still kind of a mystery to you until you searched for him with all of your heart, and then you finally found him at an altar of repentance, and, and then you were overwhelmed by his presence, and your heart melted, and, and you were weeping, and his spirit filled your lungs, and everything you had heard about him was true, but it, it wasn't even the half of what you had heard and you thought about Jesus Christ. As much as you've come to know God today, and however many years you've been living for him, I'm here to tell you tonight that there are still parts of him that are still a mystery to you and I. Our God is so big that the heavens and heaven, heaven of heavens cannot even contain him. There are parts and places and levels of God that we don't even know about. There are levels and depths in God that we have no clue about, and we probably can't even handle the truth of who God really is. And yet, people can walk in and out of the doors of a church like they know everything about God. They act like they've done it all, they've seen it all, they've heard it all, and there isn't anything more mysterious about God. But I don't know about you, but the longer that I live for Him, and the more that I learn about Him, the more that I realize I know very little in this thing. I really don't know much about God. I'm learning as much as I can every single day, but I still do not know the fullness of Him. God may have only revealed just 1% of him. We don't know how much he, he's told us. Even with the 1% that he may reveal to us, it takes all of our earthly life to even try to figure it all out. And, we, and, and sometimes we walk around like we know it all. We only know what God makes known to us. There are even invisible things of God that we are uh, able to figure out, but they're not necessarily so visible as, as it said, they're invisible. In Romans 1 and 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And so whatever truth that God wants to be known, we'll be able to find it. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so there are invisible things in God that can't be seen with our eyes, but they can only be seen through the eyes of faith that you cannot see, but you just got to believe and you see it there. And if you refuse to believe and if you don't have faith, then there are a lot of things that you will not see. 
You'll miss out on a lot of things if you don't look through the eyes of faith. And so basically Romans 1 and 20, if you understand the context of it all, basically uh, even if you don't believe that there's a God, Romans 1 is telling you that nature reveals that there's a creator. The invisible things of God uh, are, are clearly seen, uh, made known by this world that we live in so that everything, we are without excuse. If you never darken the doors of a church, you're still going to be held accountable because this world teaches you that there's a God. You just got to be hungry enough to seek after him. And if you, uh, no matter where you are in the world, if you are hungry enough to know more about God, God will lead you to a place where you will learn and you'll begin to study about God and you'll get to understand more and more about him because those that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And so the people that are hungry, God's going to lead them to the place where truth is preached. So we, everybody's without excuse uh, just because nature itself is going to be bear a witness against us, against this world. And so um, there are things that are invisible, but we can see and understand them through faith. But there are some things that are hidden in God that we cannot see or understand and are a mystery. And will only be revealed when God says it is time to be revealed. In the beginning of man's history, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, God tells the serpent, the devil, that he will put enmity between thy seed and the seed of the woman. And her seed will bruise his head, and Satan's seed will bruise uh, its heel. Now, you bet your last dollar that Satan wanted to know who that would be. If God just told him somebody's going to crush your head, Satan, you better believe he's like, I'm going to, I need to figure out who this, who this person is because i got to be on the lookout for him. Uh, and so talk about the mystery man. Who is this going to be, the seed of the woman that's going to crush my head, bruise my head? And so uh, the mystery man wouldn't be revealed for 4,000 years later. But you would never know that from the information that, was just, that God gave out. God just says there's kind of a seed of the woman's going to bruise your head. That's some information, but that's all you got. You have no idea what, what, when, where, all that stuff. You just know a little bit of whatever he's revealed to you. Uh, and so what did Satan do? Satan's not uh, uh, omnipotent. He doesn't know everything, thank God. Uh, and so Satan only knows what he, he is told or what he hears or what he learns from us. Um, and mankind. Uh, and so what did Satan do? He started going after the people of God because that's all he knows. There's coming someone of the seed of the woman that's going to crush me and I need to figure out who this is. So he starts going after the people of God because one of them is going to be that seed that would crush him. But which one? Well, uh, I guess it's, his job was a little easier in the beginning because at that point there was only one man, one woman. So he had a good start uh, on, on all this. But even still, he didn't know that it was going to show up 4,000 years later. That's a long time to wait and figure things out. You easily get lost and distracted with that much time on your hands. Uh, and so what does he do? We'll, we'll, we'll just wait for Eve to start having kids, and we'll just start right there. I mean, we're here right now, so let's just start. And so we got Cain and Abel. And so um, what, is, what does Satan do? 
um, in uh, in conjunction with the book that we're reading. So Satan probably sent a familiar spirit to watch Cain and Abel, put a watchman on them, and and report back to him of how best to attack them and uh, do what he needs to do. And so it turns out that God was accepting Abel's offerings and rejecting Cain's. And uh, this familiar spirit reported back to Satan and told him this. And so Satan says, well, let's, spit, let's send a spirit of jealousy to, to torment Cain and oppress Cain and move him to commit murder. And then the only righteous seed on the earth will be taken out. If I take it out, he won't crush my head if I take out the righteous seed. And so that's what his plan was. And so Cain kills Abel. And maybe Satan thought that he would get the upper hand on God. Here you go, God. I just took out the righteous seed. Ain't going to crush my head. Um, and so I'm winning. But, but what so happens is, is that Eve gives birth to another son called Seth. And we know through the advent of time that the seed comes through Seth. And so Satan had tried his best to take out the people of God and destroy and disrupt God's plans. But God always makes a way, doesn't he? He always makes a way. A lot of times we may think that he, we should take uh, uh, this way or that way or the door that we thought we should walk through gets closed and we start to fret and start to worry and, and all God is saying, that's not the way that I want you to go. You may try to go after Abel, but hey, my way is going through the line of Seth. You can try all you want to do, devil, but I'm still going to make a way. I'm still one step ahead of you and I will see my people through to the end. And so we just have to trust in God, even when we don't know all the details. And sometimes it may seem like a mystery. We don't know how it's going to work out or how we're going to get through it all. But we just have to trust in God that he knows the way that we take and he knows what he's doing. Uh, we, we see, we've been talking about Daniel the past few weeks and how he had all the things that he saw, but uh, in Daniel 12, something interesting transpires, Daniel 12 and 8, and I heard, this is Daniel, and I heard, but I understood not. This is another one of his dreams and visions that he saw. I heard and I understood not. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And, what, and he said, God said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time. How would you like that? Daniel obviously saw something that really bothered him in his vision. And he's like, Lord, oh my Lord, what, what does this mean? Help me out here because what I saw does not look good. And, da and God says, don't worry about it, Daniel. It's not for you to know. You're not going to find out. You won't ever know what that is. The words are closed up and sealed to the end of time. It's just going to be a mystery to you, Daniel. Of all the things that Daniel saw in his visions of the future and the end of time, even Daniel was told, don't worry about it, Daniel. It's not for you to know. You don't need to know. It will be revealed at some point, but for you, Daniel, it will remain a mystery. There are things that the prophets of God, prophets of old, were able to see and know. But there were things that were hidden from them and were a mystery and they had no idea. 
as much as the prophets in the Old Testament were able to, to speak prophetically and of the future events and things, even them, some of them, many of them saw things of the future that still haven't happened yet, um, and, but many of them uh, didn't see everything. God didn't show them everything. They only saw what they saw, and they, they don't know anything else. That's all I saw. Um, but if you put up picture number one, here is a very familiar passage of Scripture. But here in this verse is a mystery, a great mystery. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, and so somewhere in there, this is Isaiah, obviously. The prophet Isaiah saw this, um, spoke this, that God had given him. But there is a mystery right here in this verse that Isaiah didn't even know about. Picture number two, this is where the mystery is, a little hint. Split it up. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The mystery is, right in the middle of that verse, that sentence, there's a gap, a large gap. Picture number three. Child is born, for unto you a child is born, and, sorry, you can't see the bottom, but it says, rule as king, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Did that happen? When did that happen? It hasn't happened yet. The child was born, but the government upon his shoulder, that, what that means is he's in charge of the world, king of kings, lord of lords. When the government is on the shoulder of the child, that means he's ruling the earth. And so Jesus was born, but yet right in the middle of that, there's a, over a 2,000-year gap. It still hasn't happened yet. Half the verse hasn't even happened yet because God has, Jesus hasn't returned yet to rule and to, to have the government upon his shoulder. And so this is the great mystery that uh, Isaiah spoke of. And this is what he saw. This is like the mountaintops in the, in the picture. The mountaintops that are peeking up out through the clouds. You can see a few mountains, but you don't know what's in between. You can see the mountaintops, but in between every mountaintop, guess what? There's a valley. And you can't see the valley here, can you? I can see a child being born. I can see the, the, the government's going to be upon his shoulder. I can see that he's going to rule this world. That's all I can see, a child born and a king of kings ruling this world. And so right in the middle of that sentence, in the middle of the verse, there's a mystery, massive 2,000-year gap. And Isaiah didn't see it. The Jews didn't see it. It's a mystery to them. All they saw was a child born and him ruling. King of Kings. And so uh, we, we saw the child. We heard and saw the miracles of this one named Jesus. Uh, the Jews had sought him out, um, heard about a child being born, uh, and they, they saw the, the miracles that God, uh, Jesus, had done. Uh, but when he came riding into Jerusalem, he came riding in on a donkey. Kings don't do that. Kings don't come in on a donkey. Kings come riding in on a stallion, a white horse. And so what do the Jews say? He's not our king. We saw a child, but we, 
what Isaiah told us is there's a king. A government shall be upon his shoulder. And so they thought, surely he's going to be the king. He's going to come and rule. But what happened was he was coming to serve. He came to be the lamb that was slain for all the world. And so uh, the part from him being born to the part from him coming and ruling on this earth, there's a large gap in between, a mystery. And, and so uh, because uh, they killed him, and we'll, we'll just keep looking for our Messiah. We'll keep looking for him because he's clearly not him. Uh, and, and so we're waiting for our king to show up because didn't Isaiah tell us in, in Isaiah 9, 7, the very next verse as he continues on, of the increase of his government and the peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Uh, and so is, is the increase of his government and the increase of peace there no end? Do we have worldwide peace right now? That means Jesus is not on the throne. Which means the other part of Isaiah 9-6 hasn't happened yet. The first part has happened there's a huge gap, a mystery in between that Isaiah and the Jews, they didn't see it. They didn't see the, the mystery. And so this is what the Jews say. A child who becomes the king of the world, uh, they, they, say, they see that. A child being born and he becomes the king of the world. But the mystery that they could not see was the gap of time between the manger and the throne. The manger is one mountaintop, the throne is the next, and there's a huge gap in between. They could see the mountaintops, the pinnacles, the high points, even Isaiah and, and the prophets, but what they could not see was the valley that was in between them, the great mystery from the foundation of the world. Musicians, if you would come. Ephesians chapter 3 Paul is writing here, he says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of grace, of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. He made known to me that valley, the mystery between those two mountaintops. As I wrote a four and a few words, Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so, what did he say? He, he referenced, I, I already wrote a little bit about it. Uh, and so let's go back to what he says and, and start getting the context of what he said. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded to us word, uh, toward us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us... The mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And so he kind of explains the mystery there. And so it seems that the great mystery is that God will gather all mankind unto himself, not just the Jews. The Jews thought it was all about them. But the mystery is God says, I'm going for everybody. 
not just you Jews, but I'm going for everybody. I will, uh, that in the, the, the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and things which are on earth, even in him. And so, thus the gap between the child born and the government being upon his shoulders. There's a, that gap we just mentioned. There's a huge gap there. The mystery there that is underneath the clouds is that God is going to give anyone and everyone the opportunity to be saved before he comes and he sits down on that throne. He wants to give the uh, salvation to everybody. He wants everyone to have it. Aren't you thankful that there is a gap in between those two points? Aren't you thankful that the child born didn't become the king right away? Uh, that because had he become king right away, you and I wouldn't be here tonight. Had he fulfilled that whole verse when he was here, we wouldn't be here tonight, I don't think. Once Jesus sits on that throne and the government sits on his shoulders, he rules on this earth. Once he do that, does that, it's all over then. And had he done that back then, then only the Jews would have been saved. And so I'm beyond grateful that before Jesus sat on his earthly throne, before he sits on it, that he looked up some 2,000 years later. Before he would take his seat, he looked up and he saw me. And he saw you. Helpless in our sins. Dying in our sins. And we were in need of a Savior. And he said, I'm not going to go to my throne just yet. I still see some people far ahead that are in need of a Savior. I'm not going to sit down right now. I'm going to put a space of time between when I rule on this earth. Why? Because I want to give salvation to everyone. I'm going to give out my salvation to everyone that wants to be a part of my kingdom. And I'm going to call it. A dispensation of grace, a time of grace where I let others come into my kingdom. It's not just for you, the Jews, but I want to let everybody come in. If you stand with me tonight. Whereby we, Ephesians 3 and 4, as we left, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. All those that are in the Old Testament, they didn't know about this. They didn't see it. They couldn't see it. As it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is this fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world had been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. This mystery was the plan 
before the world was even created, but it was hidden. Verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers, even they didn't know, even Satan and all his demons and minions and whoever, principalities and powers, they had no idea what was going on. But even now, the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known. How do they know now? By the church. The manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, what is the great mystery? The great mystery is the church. The great mystery is the church. The church had always been the plan. Church is not plan B. It had always been the plan, but it was hidden from the foundations of the world. When the Jews rejected Jesus, he didn't say, well, let me go to plan B. No. The church had always been plan A, but the Jews didn't see it. The church was always been and has always been the apple of God's eye as we are the bride of Christ. But he just gave the Jews the first opportunity to get into this. It was preached first to the Jews. He came to his own people first, but they knew him not. They rejected him and they killed him. He was giving them an opportunity to get to be a part of this mystery that I've hidden for thousands of years. I want you to be a part of this thing that I call my bride, my body, the church. And so I'm, uh, I'm thankful that he gave us the opportunity to be a part of this, aren't you? Aren't you thankful that he said, oh, I'm not going to sit on my throne yet. I'm not going to rule on this world just yet. But I'm going to give a gap of time, a dispensation of grace, so that anyone who wants to come and be a part of this kingdom of mine can come in. And I'm thankful that I answered the call. I'm thankful you answered the call and you repented of your sins. You were baptized in Jesus' name and you were filled with the Holy Ghost. You were born again into the kingdom of God because this is what God, this is what the plan was in the first get-go is this thing called the church. It's a mystery to the Jews because they thought it's just all about them. As it turns out that God had things hidden from the beginning of the world. And I'm grateful to know the truth. I'm grateful to be a part of the truth and, and be in the church, the bride of Christ. And we know that he's coming for his bride one day, soon and very soon. Amen. And we, it is on us to stay in the truth and to preach the truth and not to sell the truth and, and to love the truth. Why? Because it's, it's the, the moment, that, a moment of grace that God has given the Gentiles, you and I, that we can be a part of this. Amen. As we close the service, we close our eyes and begin to sing. Just think on God and, and of His grace and His mercy that He allowed us to be here, to be a part of this mystery of the church. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Thank you for dying. Instead of going to the throne, you decided, I'm going to go to the cross instead. I'm going to make a way for others to be a part of this thing that I want, that I love. I love so much that I died for the church. Thank you for going to the cross and not the throne so that I can be here tonight. 
Thank you, Jesus. We want to be with you. We want to get to know you even more. Hallelujah, Jesus. It's where I him tonight. Can we thank him? We magnify you, Jesus. How great you are. You are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you, Lord, for your love that you shed for us. Your grace and your mercy, Lord, that you allowed us, God, this opportunity where we can come and worship you to be a part of your church, the mystery that is hidden from the beginning of the world. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. And 
as God has revealed this truth to us and we uh, understand what it is to be a part of the, the plan of God. He wants us not to look at it as some exclusive club where it's just, you know, us and us versus them. But he says, you got invited to come into this thing. You weren't born in it. Even if you're born in the church, it doesn't mean you're a part of it. And so uh, it is on us, he says, go out and tell people about this place. Go and tell them about the mystery of God and the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that will get them into the plan of God and what he wants to do in their life. Amen. Because the church is where it's at. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed tonight in Jesus' name. Go be the church. Go be the, the mystery. Reveal it.